Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good day, wherever, whenever you happen to be. This is Magnus Hedemark, your host of The Neuroverse on Groctopus. Neuroverse is a show about neurodiversity. I happen to be autistic. All of our guests happen to be somewhere on the Neuroverse themselves. Uh, so this is a show by us, for us, about us. I have a great guest uh, this morning. It's morning here where I'm recording this. We'll, we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, we do have a little bit of housekeeping to take care of. So uh, I wanted to let you know at the time of this recording, the show is entirely unsponsored. We don't have any ads. Uh, it's made possible by you, all of you. So uh, any contribution up to a dollar per month uh, will help out. We do have a Patreon page where you can support the show. And I will have a link to that in the show notes. For a dollar a month, uh, that's kind of like the minimum tier. And it's, it's a way that you can show support for the show. For $5 per month, uh, you would be what we would call an official patron. And, uh, as a show of gratitude to official patrons, you'll have early access to new episodes way before everybody else does. In fact, right now, uh, my patrons are able to watch me recording this episode live on YouTube. Uh, we have a YouTube live stream just for the show patrons. And, um, yeah, you can learn more about that on the Patreon page. I'll have a link in the show notes. Additionally, uh, wow, it has been a great month for the patrons. I asked for help. You folks really turned out. Uh, I want to be really transparent about what the show costs and uh, what kind of support's coming in. So right now, it costs me uh, just the regular operating costs for hosting the podcast for um, a new tool that I'm using. I'll tell you about in just a moment. It's costing me about $26 per month to run the show. And uh, we're now getting contributions of $102 per month. I don't get all of that. Uh, about $87 of that comes back to me after you take off the Patreon fees and the taxes. So there's a nice surplus there. Uh, I'm going to be using that to improve the show. I've actually got... Um, like I said, I'm doing some live streaming now and I've got a collection of parts that I've been putting together to make the, the, the quality of the live streaming better. I really want to provide my listeners, uh, an opportunity to enjoy this podcast through video as well. So I have some desk mounts and things for cameras that I'm, I'm trying to put together and figure out, uh, how I can give you folks a great video experience. For those of you who would prefer to experience the Neuroverse in video. I don't know why. If you've seen me, you probably will want to go running back to audio. That said, all right, there's one other really exciting development on the Patreon side. Uh, I put some support tiers out there that I never thought would get filled. Like as, as a host, I can create different uh, support levels, you know, like $5 a month, $10 a month. I put something out there halfway as a joke. The order of the tentacle. The order of the tentacle was supposed to be like, if somebody's feeling really generous, they can throw 50 bucks a month at this show. I never, ever thought in a million years I would be able to announce that somebody has joined the order of the tentacle, but we've got one and he, he doesn't want a whole lot of attention, but uh, 
uh, anybody that goes to the Patreon page can see who's donating and it's, it's called the end diverse foundation. So we've got a, a foundation supporting us and, ah, oh, my, my eternal gratitude to you. This is uh, fantastic. Another place where the support has gone since the last episode, we've got a mascot. Now I kept teasing you guys that folks, sorry. Um, I kept teasing you folks that I'd really love to have a mascot for the show. And I, I really knew like what I wanted of a mascot. I wanted it to be like an octopus and wanted it to be like kind of cool and broody. And, uh, I wanted an exposed brain for the head and I got that. So I was able to go out and, uh, commission an artist to create that mascot that I had in my mind. And, uh, <laughs> aside from being neurodivergent, uh, this octopus has a little bit of a strange body too. If you count the tentacles, you'll notice the, uh, the groctopus has more than eight tentacles. And at first I was inclined to, uh, to have it corrected. And then I thought, you know what? Uh, my brain's a little different and I, I don't want it corrected and there might be an advantage to having extra tentacles. So I'm going to embrace this divergent cephalopod. So, uh, if, if you are checking out this app or I'm sorry, this podcast on a, on a phone app, um, you, you can see the Groctopus logo there. And certainly, you know, if you click back to our show notes, you'll see the Groctopus logo. Along with that, uh, once I released this on Twitter, folks were asking me, can I get stickers and stuff like that? So yes, you can get stickers, you can get shirts, you can get bags. Uh, I don't want to get too commercial about it, but uh, so the, I, I'm keeping the prices really low. But anything I do get from the Groctopus swag does go back to supporting the show, to improving the show, to making it more listenable and ideally more accessible. I really, I have kind of a holy grail place where if the support gets high enough, I want to be able to pay a professional uh, transcriptionist. I, th this is like so important to me, but at the same time, I'm not skilled to do this myself. And I've tried a number of automated applications. Some of you have written to me privately and said, hey, have you tried this app? Yes, I've tried them. They don't work especially because some of the terminology we use on the show is not in common parlance outside of the neurodiversity community. So the, the apps have a hard time transcribing those words. It ends up being a ton of work for me to go back and, and fix everything that's wrong with the transcript. So I'd rather pay a professional, pay a human to do it. Uh, labor's not cheap. These episodes tend to run long and, um, yeah, so it's going to be a little while. Just know it's out there and the support's growing nicely when the support reaches a certain point. That will be a feature of the show. Wow. All right. So that, that was a lot about support, but there's been a lot of news there. You're probably also wondering, where has the show been? Like we were coming out almost on a weekly cadence and we had that great episode with Haley Moss a little while back. Uh, what we like to, to call the, the podcast about nothing. Haley loved it. I loved it. She will be back. We will be doing uh, Neurofeld, the podcast about nothing, once again. Uh, I, I didn't want to overwhelm all of you with that. But I will say, um, you know, this year's been tough on a lot of us. Uh, mental health issues are like super common among neurodivergent folks, certainly among autistic folks, and I am no exception. 
So I've been in a funk and I didn't want, I did not want to, um, to broadcast all of that to all of you and to bring you down. I want the show to bring all of you up. So I took a little bit of, bit of time to get myself in order and, uh, I think I'm there. So I'm looking forward to, to diving into the neuroverse once again with all of you. I've also started since the last episode, um, working on a podcast at work. I work in a huge company and there's only one other openly autistic person at this company, Amy Root. She and I, Amy and I have started hosting a podcast together at work. We call it Divergent Minds. And you can't really get there from here, so to speak, unless you work at the same company as me. But it's been pretty cool because it, a lot of it's like Neuroverse. It's about uh, highlighting neurodivergent talent within our very large company and you know, trying to figure out what, you know, how does that work for us? Um, how, how has that helped? And where, what are the challenges we still need to overcome? The really funny thing is, I think I've got more listeners on that private podcast that only my coworkers can get to more listeners there than on this publicly available global podcast. I thought that was pretty cool. So I, I just wanted to share that with you. Um, being able to speak up at work, being able to be out and open and talking about how being neurodivergent has helped you and what are still some of the things that you need to overcome to um, do your best work. That's powerful. And it's, it's really changing things for people. I'm looking forward to talking more about that in the future. Just one last thought before we get to our guest. Uh, I'm going to make some adjustments to the show cadence. I am, I'm not going to be releasing the show on a weekly cadence. I don't think it's um, necessarily fair to you or to me to, to try to do that. I know most uh, neurotypical podcasts, you know, the, the typical podcasts that are out there try to aim for uh, a cadence where you can depend on that show being released at a certain time on a certain day, like clockwork. I don't work like that. I'm sorry. I, I, um, I have great days. I have bad days. I want to share content with you when I'm on my great days. And I I'm hoping that the content I'm releasing helps to bring you up as well. So if I'm feeling really productive, if I'm feeling really great, you're probably going to get deluged with episodes. In fact, I'm recording two episodes today and they're going to be, be released, uh, almost one on top of the other. I'm going to try to keep them a day apart, but you're going to get extra content this week. And when I'm having down weeks, uh, you might not get much at all. So I hope you're okay with that. I hope you'll, uh, support me in that. And I hope you'll enjoy the show and continue to enjoy the show. I have just finished talking a bunch and I am so excited to welcome our next guest, Re Lloyd Williams. Hi, Re. Hello. How are you? I am fantastic. I am <laughs> so happy to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. This is, yeah. Hello from not so sunny Wales. Not so sunny Wales. I think you are our first guest from across the pond. I hope I'm not screwing anybody <laughs> up there i'm pretty sure that's true no that's not true oh my gosh 
Uh, okay. <laughs> First one from Wales. First one from Wales. Yeah, that's all right. That, yeah. <laughs> okay. So like way back episode two, way back in June, Paul Stevenson came and talked to us about Tourette's. Excellent. So yes, you're our first from Wales. <laughs> That's all I care about. That's the priority. Yes. All right. <laughs> Representation. So I loved what you were saying actually about um, only putting these out when you're in the right space. I think that's so yeah. important. Like that we actually do work to our own cycles and that we see and we hear you doing that and taking that agency and doing it. I think that's, that's really nice. I love that. that. Thank you. (laughs) So you're no stranger to creative work yourself, right? Tell us a little about what you do. I do. What don't I do? I do. (laughs) Well, what do I officially do? (laughs) I officially, I'm a poet and a playwright and a writer. Um, I've got a blog, which I blog about autism. Um, and I've got a play in which I write about that's about autism as well. And I write various poetry about all sorts of things. But so creativity is probably like my number one fueling thing. If I'm not being creative, then I feel really stuck. But it's not just writing and poetry as well. It's DIY. It's putting things together. It's building stuff. It's finding stuff. It's, um, it's a big part of how I function and who I am. So wait, you're not a computer programmer? I'm not a computer programmer. Imagine that. <laughs> so you're autistic and you're not a techie. Wait. Not a techie, although I, I so nearly was. It was, Yeah. you know, at school, I loved science. I loved maths and I loved art and I loved English. And I was right down the middle going, oh, I'm, I'm stuck because I can do all this stuff. Which will I do? And I chose, I went down the route of English literature because it was not harder but there wasn't an answer. It never, you know, mm. I wasn't looking for an answer. And it was also part of my studying humanity. Because when you read, you'd learn not just what people, what people are saying, how they're acting. You get to see inside their heads and you get to right. see inside the writer's head and you get to see all the subtext. So whilst I was working out how people work, my fascination with people kept growing. And my fascination with the sort of I still love numbers. I still love all that. I'm still fascinated by science and I love the way everything interlinks and stuff. And I so nearly, so nearly became an engineer, but, um, no art, art is where it's at. (laughs) I'm I'm so glad you didn't become an engineer. Not that I think you would be bad at it, but you've really, before the world went upside down, you were really on quite a streak. Like I am not in the UK, but (laughs) I couldn't turn a corner in the autistic community without hearing about the duck. Oh, that's really nice to hear. (laughs) Can, can you tell us all a little bit about the duck and, and bear in mind, most of my listeners are not in the UK. So this might be the first time a lot of folks are hearing about the duck. Yeah. So I'll probably have to go back to my diagnosis of autism. So I was diagnosed with, um, yeah, autism spectrum condition, whatever you want to call it, in 2015. But I suspected I was for about five years before that. And after di- getting diagnosed, I wasn't sure if I was going to tell anybody about it. Right. It was really just for me. So at first, it was just me and my husband who knew about it. Um, and then I started my blog, um, autistry.com where I started writing, just sharing my experience. And I'd not really had any interactions with autistic people 
that I knew of. Right. Um, and I sort of shared it with this autism community online and my they appeared everyone they were everywhere all these people shared back and said yeah me too and so I had this real feeling of going through I lived in rural Wales growing up you don't meet a lot of people there's not a huge smorgasbord of you know um, interactions with everybody in a day-to-day basis so meeting autistic people were few and far between and so having this interaction with the autism community and having other people who thought like me, I thought I was completely alone in how I thought. Yes. I grew up feeling like completely um, isolated by it. Nobody was like me. Nobody thinks like me. I'm, you know, and, and that was really, really hard at times. And then I found out, actually, there's loads of people who think like you. You're not interesting. You're not fascinating. You're not unique at all. You're not special. You're autistic. You're really normal autistic, which was really, really nice. And so I started writing the blog and I started writing about my experiences. And I kept coming up against this problem that we all had, that there was no proper representation of autism in the media there were so few people that you could look at and say, right, they're autistic and they're like me. And as an autistic woman growing up in the UK in the sort of 80s, 90s, 2000s, it was, there was nobody, there was nobody. I I had worked with autistic children and I had been taught all those stereotypes. I'd been taught all those don't have empathy and you're not caring and you're not loving. And I was like, oh, but I communicate really, really easily with them which means I must be great at my job. It has nothing to do with the fact that we're communicating using the same language because I have empathy and I'm caring and I've got kids and I'm loving and I'm married and I'm doing this and that and the other and I don't fit any of these boxes. So then um, I happen to know this brilliant director, I can't even say her name, Jo Loin. And she came to me and she said, I've got this brilliant actor who I want to do something with. Would you consider writing a play? And I'm not a playwright. That was not something I had done. I'm a poet. I mean, I'd studied plays, but I hadn't written one. Um, And so I said, I'll I'll give it a go, but I can't guarantee you'll get anything. She said, you know, try. And using the brilliantness that is autistic hyperfocus, by the end of the week, she had a play in her hand. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And I say the end of the week. At the time, my youngest, what was it, 2017? So my youngest was two. So he was still up during the day. He napped for two hours every afternoon. And that's when I got to work. (laughs) While you're being the mother of a toddler. Yeah. Yeah. Fun times. But when I get into the writing, it just sort of pours from me, which was brilliant. So we started, so it's 2017 when we first started putting the play together. And it was one of those, because I had the actor and director all sort of already set up. I didn't know anything about the actor. It was a bit of a weird thing. And I remember, they live sort of five hours from me, and I remember driving down there to go and meet them for the first time. So we're going to spend a week together, see if we could put it together. And spending the whole time driving down going, but what if she's awful? What if she's right. just shocking? What, you know, what am I going to do if I give her my words and they're, oh, and she's crap. <laughs> um, and luckily she wasn't. And when we got talking, it turned out that she was neurodivergent too. She's not really? autistic, but she's dyspraxic and dyslexic. Okay. And so I was like, oh, brilliant. Because although you're not autistic, you get what it's like to think differently you get what it's like to have that underlying thing where everyone assumes you can do something really easy 
because you seem to be presenting as though you could and then you can't do that. And it's not a case of you can learn to, I can't, there's certain things that are always going to be really right. hard for me. And so, yeah, so that was sort of origin of the duck. And the duck is about being a late diagnosed autistic woman. And they say autistic people have no imagination. Um, yeah, unfortunately, this doesn't showcase me having imagination because it really is just bit straight out of my experiences. Um, so it's a one woman play. Um, and it's her literally just getting her autism diagnosis. So she's just had the official, official, you know, awful. It's a very vulnerable time. Very vulnerable time. You've just laid bare all the things that are difficult about your life. You've just gone to somebody and said, look, this is how I'm faulty. Look at all the ways yes. that I'm faulty because they don't look at the good stuff. They're not interested in that. They're not interested in your autistic joy and your autistic passion and your hyper-focus. Mm -hmm. No, it's all very, very clinical and you're this, you're bad at this, you're bad at that. And you've had to really strip yourself naked in front of yes. all these different people who want to dissect your life. And then you get this offic official thing that says, right, yeah, you're autistic. And how, how, how do you begin to process that? How do you begin to think? Because I remember that. I remember that all those feelings that first year. Because I remember at first I was overwhelmingly happy. I yes. was thrilled. I was like, oh my God, I'm autistic. Right. I finally make sense. This makes sense. This makes sense. This makes yeah. sense. Yeah. I finally understand how I work. I can stop comparing myself to other people who don't work in the same way as me. I can start comparing myself to the right sort of people, um, to those who work like me. And I can stop feeling like I'm a failure and start feeling like I'm, I've actually been really, really successful with how I've come up with all these coping mechanisms, how I've dealt with all these situations. Oh, when I did that, that's because I'm autistic. Oh, when I reacted like that, I wasn't going mad. I was, I was reacting in a really completely normal autistic way to that extreme sensory issue or whatever it was. And so I had this whole going back. And then there were other times I thought, oh, hang on, the things I find hard, they are always going to be hard. Yes. The things I find difficult, that utter exhaustion after, do, you know, I love socializing. I'm, I'm, I really, really love it. I really love meeting people. I think people are brilliant. And I get this such a huge social hangover, that utter burnout after spending too much time talking to new people or in an awful environment. And I hate that. I hate that I've got to give time up my life when I could be doing something fun after something else that was fun. I've got to go right now. If I'm going to do that, that's going to take me two days to recover. And I'm always going to have to do that. That's right. not going to yeah. go away. But that that wasn't going to go away anyway. That's sort of, <laughs> That's just how it was always going to be. And I've got to learn to accept that. So there were things that were good about that year and things that were bad about that year and th this play is about that year it's about looking back through memories and and really examining who who I am I don't think I could write that play now I wrote too it, far removed yeah I, I wrote it while I was still processing still it was still you know it's only two years post-diagnosis and I was still working through it all and I wasn't quite there yet and I wasn't I was still feeling very raw about everything it was all still very yeah fresh is the right word um but I'm so glad I did write it and it's been and the first night we put it on I was absolutely petrified I don't think I've there's been few occasions where I've been more scared and I sat at the back of the audience watching, just watching the audience, wasn't interested in the play. I was just watching the audience and all their different reactions. You're Are they vulnerable all over again. 
so vulnerable and it got to the point after watching it a few times I went I can't keep watching this I can't keep going back to where I was then but after that first show I had uh, an autistic woman who I had never met before in my life come up to me and just say you put me on stage and I was like incredible that was that was everything everything to me um it really made me feel like I belonged and that's that's what the play has given me and I hope that's what the play has given the audience as well and what it sort of it works it's not just it's not just, it's not a serious play I like to say it's entertaining as well it's funny I need funny I think humor is such a good way to communicate things because there's a lot of quite um contentious stuff in there it's quite but people with autism don't have a sense of humor. No, no, you're not allowed to have a sense of humor, so I keep forgetting that. Unfortunately, comedy is one of my special interests, so I, yes. I love stand-up, and I am a huge fan of comedy, because it's communication, and communication is my thing. So, um, yeah, and I've, I've got to the point where I'm beginning to think my play, I could probably use it as a diagnostic tool based on who laughs when. Oh, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, because they so, get it. Yeah, exactly. You've either got people who got that joke or they got that one, and I'm sitting there going, "Yeah, I can work all this out." That's brilliant. So, um, everything was going great. 2020 hit, and how how has that changed things? It's changed everything. I'm supposed to be at Edinburgh Fringe Festival right now, which is the biggest fringe festival in the world, and we were going to be doing the full month with the duck, and wow. not there. That's that's cancelled. All our summer tour has been cancelled, so everything's just gone. Um, we met. We had our last show on March the seventh, and that seems like a long so long ago. Now. Yeah. And it seems weird to think, you know, we were sitting in a theatre with a sold-out audience and everyone was sitting together and there was this huge looming thing going on in the background that hadn't quite hit yet. Um, and it was such an amazing time. Yeah, so I've been... It's been an interesting time. You were saying it's sort of been ups and downs. It's been so difficult for everybody and I definitely include myself in that. I've I've kept going with the creative stuff just to keep myself sane um, because it's been so needed and it, I remember at the beginning of lockdown I became this sort of I couldn't concentrate on anything for more than a couple of minutes I was so I was flitting from one thing to the next it was an absolute nightmare and so I made myself a rule that I had to write a poem a day no matter how I felt I love that. and how awful the poetry was it had to be written and so I now have a really long poem <laughs> I might have to try that. I, I had, um, early in my life, I, I had to choose one way or the other, computers or creative work. And uh, com the computer side was always good for money. <laughs> and it was reliable. So that's the way I felt. Um, but there's still, like, this thread of, like, I, I have, like now I have to podcast. I have to get into video, but also the writing, the photography, and and so on. And uh, I just wish this world put a higher value on the creative arts to where somebody who felt it and could translate that 
that thread they're pulling on, the, the, the people who can translate that into a medium that others could experience and interpret that same thread in their own way. I wish there were a place for more people to be able to dedicate themselves to that. And there's so much that could come out of this year. Like, this year has been so transformative for so many people. It has. It's been a real time for everyone, I think, to take stock about what's important and what's valuable and what and how we respond to a crisis like this. That is ongoing and weird. It's not. It's not one rush of adrenaline and you hold on to that and then it's gone. We're in a long period of crisis where things are outside of our control and how you cope with that and how you deal with that. And I think when it comes to creativity, autistic people are are so creative. Yes. I think, you know, we, we always talk about, oh, the engineer, the computer program, like, those are creative things as well. Can be. You know, you can't, you can't restrict creativity yeah. to the arts by any means, but that drive to be creative is at the core of so many autistic people, and if you yeah. can't do it, if you can't express yourself in some way, it's really, really hard. But yeah, there's, there's it's not a good industry for uh, financial reasons. <laughs> Certainly not the most uh, productive on that side. So from a sensible point of view, um, it probably is not the industry I should have chosen. But I, it's my great love. I'm, I'm envious. I have like, you, you can't see further down behind me, but there are journals with novels that I've begun writing. <laughs> and then I get another idea and start another one. And if I quit my job today and did nothing else but finish all the things I started, I could work full time for the rest of my adult life and yeah, never I, run I out of things brilliant. to do. <laughs> That's brilliant. So no, I know I, it's one of the reasons I'm a poet is that I, I can finish sure the fun. I can yeah. get to the end of those really quickly. I can decide when to stop and it's done. I also have a long list of unfinished novels and various things that I am constantly working on or thinking about or going to get back to honest one day. The, the first, the, the only novel I ever finished the first draft on, like you said, you wrote the duck in like days. And that novel took 17 days with a two-day break in the middle. Yeah, well done. And I did one I in, in I think 21 days once. Um, actually, again, that was also in whilst processing still. Yeah. I think it was about a year after diagnosis, I, um, I decided to write about it. And yeah, 21 days. And I did it all on my phone as well. Oh, goodness. Because I... I was still looking at, I think, yeah, my baby would have only been one then. <laughs> so I didn't have yeah. enough time to sit at the computer. No, I had a, funny, like a tiny really laptop. Now. They don't make them anymore. Apple had an 11-inch, like, student MacBook. Oh. And I uh, had my Scrivener app on there, and uh, I took it everywhere. So if I was at work waiting for a meeting to begin, it always takes, like, five, six minutes for everybody to show up. I bang out 300 words. Yeah. And, you know, lunch break. I have my lunch in one hand and I'm pecking with, you know, one hand on the keyboard 
get out another 500 words. I was hitting like 3,000 plus words a day. And that's the thing. You're, yeah. you're sprinkling your creativity throughout your life. Yeah. I just, I just wish it were more consistent. It's hard. Like, um, I am not super social. I, I go the other way. But the demands of my job have me spending a lot of time socially in 30-minute increments with different people all day long, every day. So by the end of the day, I have to retreat and recover. And there's nothing left to give. There's no... Like, even though the ideas are there, there's no, um, there's no fire left. There's, there's no space to process more. Yeah. You're just, you're just in recovery mode at that point. But enough about me. So, I'm, I'm fascinated about, um, uh, like, the whole process with writing the duck. Sound, I know you did a lot more than the duck, but there's, a, I think there's a lot here to talk about. The whole process sounds unconventional to me that like you didn't have a play and then look for a director who then looked for an actor it went completely the opposite direction you know, there's an actor that has a director that is now looking for a playwright you know that it's completely about your artistic journey or that, that initial journey of self-discovery after diagnosis you know there's autistic people in the audience that get it was there anything different about how the play was presented about the theater experience in, in light of that? Yeah, we thought really carefully about, I mean, the whole thing of, the whole thing of the theater. I mean, when I say I'm super social, I, I'm not, I can't do it often. I love it, but I cannot, I probably couldn't do the number of meetings you do in a day without really, really struggling. I got to a point of, of overload too quickly, yeah. but I really enjoy it. And when it comes to theatre, I love the theatre, I love doing all that stuff, but it can be so hard to access um, yes. as an autistic person. It can be really hard to get through the door. And having been to an awful lot of theatres in the last few years, and, and going into theatre as well, as I said, I wasn't a playwright. I come from an English literature background. I come from a writer's background. I'm not a big theatre person. I like theatre, but it's not my passion. It's not my thing. Learning, well, first of all, there's a whole language of theatre that you have to learn. Okay. People don't say what they mean in theatre. They, um, you know, after the first productions, the, the person who ran the theatre came down and said, Darling, it was wonderful, it was brilliant, it was, it was so good, wow, wow, powerful, cried, amazing. And I turned to my director and I said, Oh, I think she liked it. And the director said, Oh, no, she says that to everyone. I'll wow. go and find out if she really liked it. And I thought, well, How the hell am I going to work out what anyone ever means in this, in this, um, hyper neurotypical communication? Yeah, neurotypical communication. Luckily, she did actually mean it. She did okay. genuinely like it, so that was good. <laughs> but, and then I realised, right, okay, so well, part of the problem, part of the reason we're struggling to get, I think, autistic people into the theatre is there are all these pretensions that go with it. There's all these ideas of who a theatre-goer is, who they are, how they work. You have to, you know, and then you've got the buildings. Some of the buildings are really problematic there. Yes. 
Particularly in the UK, you get them in these tiny little art deco, ever so beautiful, but there's a bar right there, and that's the only place you can stand before you go into the show, and it's loud, and it's noisy, and there's no escape. And then you go into the show, and it's tiny, it's cramped, and it's, you know, everyone's all squashed together. And there's nothing on the website to tell you what it's going to be like. There's nothing to tell you how, you know, where the doors are, how to structure any of your visit. And so the only way you can do it is by turning up and going for it and I've met a lot of autistic people for whom theatre is their thing that's their interest and so they're passionate about it and they'll put themselves through it but the everyday autistic person who just wants to go and see a play that they think reflects their lives or that interests them in any way it can be a huge thing to get through that door so I'm I started um, yeah, I introducing it. the concept of um, oh god I can't even remember what I've called it I'm a genius hang on a minute <laughs> it was instead of um, relaxed performances, it was, um, oh, I can't remember, I'm having that moment of where the words gone, yay. Anyway, it's like a relaxed performance, but one of the problems of, you know, relaxed performances are supposed to be more accessible, but actually for some autistic people, they're worse, because you've got people who are, who don't necessarily follow any rules at all, you know, it might, you don't know if it's going to be loud, you don't know if you're allowed to walk around or not, are people going to be walking around in front of me, what if I'm visually really distracted by that? When I see relaxed performance, I think, that's not for me, I need, I need silence, but what I do need, I do need to ask some questions, I want to know what's going to happen in the performance, I want to know if it's going to be loud, if it's going to be uncomfortable, if there's going to be lights, if there's going to be music, so I started writing things, I thought I'd just put up a little bit about a venue each time, I'll do the research, I'll put it out there, so that autistic people coming along can have a little bit, they'll know what to expect, Right. and on top of that, I've given some information about the play, and I didn't want to strip it out, actually, I haven't, it's not perfectly accessible for autistic people. There are some loud bits. There are certainly some bits where you might feel uncomfortable. But I'm going to tell you that they're there, and I'm going to give you that agency as an adult to make that decision on your behalf. And if you want earplugs, we'll have earplugs to give you. And you can put them in and they'll help dull it. You'll still be able to hear everything, but they'll dull everything. And, you know, and, and if you want to leave during the performance, absolutely can. I I'd rather you didn't walk around within the space, but you can leave and come back. That's mm-hmm. absolutely fine. So nobody is trapped in there. And I said, gave the rules for what I want to be. And it's this idea of just everybody being considerate of everybody else, really. Considerate. That's the word. It's a considerate performance. And you had that there in the end. <laughs> Instead of that relaxed performance, it's a considerate performance. So I've got various stems that I like to do, and some are more annoying to other people than others. And if I'm in a situation where I'm around other people, and I've got a choice between stems, and that only applies if I have a choice, then I can choose the one that doesn't bother the person next to me. But if I have a stem that is does make some amount of noise and I need to do it, then that's acceptable. You're being as considerate as you can be, but also it's a space where you're safe to be you. So it's a really delicate balance of, I don't want the world to be perfect, because I don't think a perfect world exists. 
because we have conflicting needs. And one of my needs is to see things expressed properly and uncomfortably and funnily and brilliantly and all the different range of emotions. I don't want autistic experience to be clean and perfect and, you know, absolutely this tiny little narrow corridor that is really uninteresting. I want autistic experience to cover every aspect, every realm of humanity. But I want to do it in such a way that I know what's coming next as much as I can. I want to be able to prepare myself. I want to have, feel like I have, as I say, agency, control over whether this is too much for me. If it's too much for me, I can leave. That's fine. But I can make that choice. I'm in control of my life and I'm being treated as an adult rather than saying I'm going to strip all this out and you're just left with what's left. Whatever, however rubbish that is. Um, I hope that makes some sort of sense. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> So you've got a lot of other stuff going on, too. Uh, certainly, poetry's been a, a major underlying current. Uh, how, how does... Now, I just had my moment. How, <laughs> I'm trying to connect the dots, right? How does um, poetry progress beyond, like, your personal experience with it to a shared experience with others? Hmm, that's a very good question. I'm not sure I can answer that question, but I'll try. So, growing up in Wales, poetry is almost compulsory from as soon as you can talk. We are the land of poetry, and for me, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing, because part of who I am, I'm going to forget your question instantly and answer my own one. That's I've got synesthesia as well, and I've got synesthesia, which means that uh, it's not the interesting one where you get to see, like, music as colours. That's the one I want to have. Yes. It's one where, for me, all numbers are shapes. And they're not just the shape they are, they're the shape of the numbers that make them up. All the different ways you can create each number is made of its previous shapes, which is great for maths and really useful, but it also applies to words. Each word has a number which is associated with a shape, which is also associated with a feeling, from sort of excited and dangerous down to really boring and dull and safe. And so for me, when I put words together in any sentence, in any way, it's really important for me that each sentence balances. So when I'm writing poetry from a musical point of view, um, from a structural point of view, I'm using my synesthesia to create the pattern, which you didn't ask about at all, but I'm sure that's Run with it. And so, when I am writing my poetry, I am always trying to get across a feeling, a moment, a sense of time. It's very sensory-based. It's very immersive. And I tend to choose words based on my synesthesia, not necessarily the perfect communication, because I'm trying to get across both the musicality of the moment as well as the feeling of the moment and to pick the exact right one is really important and this also comes from be being bilingual so I did all my schooling in Welsh despite having this ridiculous English accent um, I went to Welsh schools and I was first language Welsh doing all my um, learning and in Welsh poetry um, they often don't rhyme but they have to have the same syllables in the same order throughout 
a sentence which you can do in Welsh because Welsh is really structured and sensible as a language. Now, English is a ridiculous, stupid language made up of so many different other languages. It is the most multicultural language, I it's, think. It's the junkyard of languages. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's brilliantly ridiculous and stupid and doesn't follow any rules and takes from the French and the German and, you know, and the Welsh, obviously, it takes from that too. Um, and so communicating anything in English in a musical way is much harder than in a more sensible language because it's not a musical language, it's communication language. It's really, really good at being direct and it's really, really good at getting to the core of things and passing it on. And because my passion is communication rather than art, all I want to get out of my poems is to give you a sense of something. That's what I'm trying to communicate. And that and that can be it can be just a feeling you had when you were five or when you touched a stone or when you you know, I want to give you that little moment, take you to that little place because everybody's got them scattered throughout their lives. These little moments, these little pockets of memories that take you to somewhere where you just felt good. Um, they don't always do that. Some of my parents are quite angry, but they're, you know, not as fun, so I tend to ignore those. <laughs> I, I don't know if you realized it when you said it, but one of the thing, one of the examples you threw out there just sounded like such an artistic experience. Like when you first touched a stone. <laughs> and I think, like, I, I have three children. I have two neurotypical children and one autistic child. And I think about, like, the two neurotypical children be like, Dad, what are you talking about? Just touch the stone. Like... Come on. It's, 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 it's just a lot. Is that the problem? How are they? All my kids are teenagers. Yeah, so once you're a teenager, they know everything. But when they're small children, every small child has that moment. Sure. I, I think <laughs> my autistic teenager still very much has those moments. Mm. She's the one that's got rows of books next to her bed that are very well organized by the color of the spine. I like her already. Yes, yes. And uh, while everybody else wanted to have a puppy, she wanted to have a parrot. And uh, she has a, a very tactile kind of relationship with her parrot. And all, the, all the touches and feels, like they enjoy the same kind of toy. So the whole, like the first time you touched a stone, that really resonated from an artistic experience. I think yeah. a lot of us still have those things every day. Definitely. I think it's so sad. I feel I feel really, really, really desperately sorry for anyone who lost that. I mean, for me, that is such a hugely... It's a hugely connecting and yes. happy part of my life to notice things and experience them and get that minute moment of pleasure where you go, oh, feel that stone, oh, that's really smooth, right. that's really nice, and you just feel it, it grounds you in the moment in a way that nothing else does, all this mindfulness stuff that's so popular at the moment is really just trying to teach us to be more autistic and pay attention to what's around us and experience what's around us rather than thinking about what we should be doing, where we should be going, what we should be saying, actually live in the moment, I think that's when we enjoy those moments that's that's really really hugely healthy for everyone but somewhere along the way the non-autistic people they take the wrong path they choose the wrong thing they lose that absolute love 
of stuff. And not, not expensive stuff. Just whatever is there, whatever's around you, whatever catches your eye. There's so much joy in that. It's tragic, it's really tragic. Somewhere inside of every person without autism is a fully formed autistic person waiting to come out. Yeah, yeah, I really feel for them. <laughs> Maybe we should start a charity for them. I think they need one, I do, I think they need one. We should, put, we should throw money at them. Yes. Try and help them, help them love life. <laughs> oh my gosh, we've been, we've been at this <laughs> for so long. I could probably keep going. So I'm hoping that we can do this again at some point. I'd love to have you back, V. That would be really lovely. Yeah, anytime. It's been really nice chatting. So, uh, I'm sure that n now everybody's had a chance to meet you, to hear more about your work. How do my listeners connect with you? How do they follow you and, and learn more about what you do? Okay, you can find my blog website, which um, started way back when I was still processing everything um, at autistry.com and that's A-U-T-I-S-T-R-H-I.com because I am also a sucker for puns. Um, you can also find my play The Duck on autact.co.uk A-U-T-A-C-T.co.uk and you can find me on Twitter at outfoxgloved. Outfoxgloved. Okay. Thank you so much, Ree. And Thanks for having me. We're going to get back into the Neoverse really soon. In fact, I'm doing another interview today. But I'm going to space the podcast episodes out by a day so you have some time to digest. I don't want to rush the meal, so to speak. So, enjoy this episode. Listen to it again and again. I could just listen to you speak really like you have the loveliest voice. And we're going we're gonna to get into it again. So... If you're listening to this on Tuesday when it comes out, we'll have another episode on Wednesday and all goes well. So, thanks so much. Stay in your divergence.